Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by the Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Tapping Into the Human. I am very stoked about this guest. We have Dr. Ben Boyce, uh, who is actually the host of the podcast, The Dr. Junkie Show, which is dedicated to harm reduction, ending the war on drugs, and recognizing the connections between systems of power. Ben describes himself as an addicted person who has spent years of his life locked up for petty theft, fraud, and other crimes related to his drug use. And after his release from a Michigan prison in 2005, he enrolled in college and eventually earned his PhD, hence the name uh, Dr. Junkie. He currently teaches undergraduate comms classes at the University of Colorado and the University of Denver. So Ben, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. That was incredible. I don't enjoy reading live on my podcast i do my intros after because you just nailed it but that was not what my intro would have sounded like i would have tripped all over it and had to re-record it so thank you that was great yeah no for sure well i'm i'm really excited to have you on the podcast and i think it's interesting too we were just chatting before this you were talking about prisons and i think there's so many different things and as i've been listening to your podcast more i think we share a lot of similar views And one thing that I love about podcasts is like, I'm sure you find it too, but it's so great when you speak to someone, you're always learning something new. So first, before we go into the podcast and all the different cool things that you do, um, can you tell me a little bit more about you and and sort of your background? You said you're an addicted person. Um, Do you still identify as addicted person and, and that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll try to circle around and come to the addicted person part, but the short answer is yeah, absolutely. Probably not for the reason most people identify as still addicted though, but I'll get to that. I have always loved to do drugs. I about 14 years old, started smoking marijuana and realized immediately that it medicated something that I hadn't even had diagnosed and wouldn't have diagnosed till years later, but it was Asperger, which we now group in with the autism spectrum. Right. Uh, this is huge right now that we're having sort of this not only re-diagnosis where, where people are realizing, oh, that's me, but that's because the stigma has just barely started to go away from that. So nowadays, clearly that would have been treated very different than it was in, should I reveal when that was? <laughs> 1996. It's not that long ago yet, but there wasn't any such thing as legal marijuana. I was in Michigan, not even medicinal. And my parents certainly wouldn't have known even if they could have put me on marijuana. So along with realizing something was medicated that now we've we've seen studies that people that are on the spectrum that use marijuana for 90 days begin to show increased improvement in things like anxiety, depression, being overwhelmed in social situations, which was my big thing. Right. But I got busted smoking really early outside of my school, went to jail, and by the time I was 15 realized I'm a criminal and I just could never juggle that cognitive dissonance that we all sort of have in the United States, that the police are good guys and bad guys. I was a kid and they were going to take me to jail. So I always had to think, put your weed away, make sure it's tucked away. If somebody asks you about it, lie, because you don't know. And when you build your identity as a kid on that, along with the misinformation I soaked up from culture about drugs, 
I ran all the way through different drugs thinking they were very similar to marijuana because I the only difference I was taught is some are a little more addictive. To a kid, that means they're better. They're the same <laughs> thing, but they're better. So if the weed works, try some heroin. Spent some time addicted to benzos, ended up uh, mainline injecting cocaine and heroin and using fentanyl for, on a daily basis for three or four years before it all sort of crashed and burned in a prison sentence. Wow. That is what a story. And that's interesting too. You mentioned fentanyl as well. I think there's this misinformation campaign going on right now that, you know, it's only China sending in fentanyl and fentanyl is poisoning drugs, which that part is true, but there's also people who choose to do fentanyl as a drug of choice. Yeah. Um, and I think the other interesting thing you mentioned is like this whole thing of like, you didn't know any better because like one drug was worse than another or harder or whatever, because like at, the whole thing that they teach you growing up, right? Doing drugs is bad and yeah. all drugs are equally as bad without actually informing you of the consequences or what you can do to help yourself or help someone else. So I find that interesting too. And when you were starting your podcast, well, what, what inspired you to start the podcast? That's a great question because this is where our stories sort of align in a heartbreaking way. I had a person that actually I'd lost track of for a while between prison, but was friends with in high school and really good friends along the way. We both struggled with addictions, but she was the sort of person that was going to be okay. And we all sort of knew out of the group, she was the one that was like, knock off the nonsense when it got a little bit too much, but she was yeah. still down. We'd get drunk. We'd go out and party, all that stuff. Right. And I had lost track with her. I reconnected and she was struggling with some addiction issues now that I had sort of ironed out my level day to day and uh, unexpectedly killed by the war on drugs. Very similar to your story. Yeah. And it inspired in me, I'm sure you can relate to this, this energy that you have to do fucking something, right? Exactly. Sorry, I don't know if I can cuss on no, you. But, right. And it's, it's this new venue we have. I mean, if you stand out in the, the street and scream 10 years ago or right now, you like two people look at you funny and they're not listening. We have this new digital comments called podcasting that just it's become a way for me to grieve. Me too. And I, I find it like, you know, um, it was the anniversary of my friend's uh, death on the 6th. And, you know, people say, how do you do it every single day? And I find it a therapeutic process to sort of like grieve, but knowing that you're hopefully inspiring other people, learning and, and continuing on their legacy, you know, because otherwise, what are we supposed to do? And even if it's one person, I feel like who's listening to the podcast, who can just be a tad bit more informed, like, is, isn't that the whole point of what we're doing? Yeah. Absolutely. I had somebody early on say like, and it, it was, you, you've noticed already, you're going to get some interesting emails, plenty of support. And then a few that you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. Yeah, even yeah. Personal conversations where somebody said, you act like you're trying to change the world. So what kind of narcissistic attitude do you have? And I, it was, I had realized before that it didn't offend me. Like I maybe would have thought it would, because mm. I had totally positioned myself. Like you just said, like, I remember what it was like to be homeless everybody's cut you out because they don't know what else to do in our culture and you know right. you're a bad guy because everybody's told you you're a bad guy the police yeah. and the judge say you're a bad guy and to know that oh there's people out there that are just like me that managed to navigate it and not say you get clean and sober or else or uh do the 12 steps get your heart right with god all the domineering domination things that we typically do in our culture and instead are like there's a way to figure out who you are and define your own recovery. 
Exactly. And you, you talked about how you were in jail. Were you in active addiction when you had to went to jail? Like, did you have to go through the withdrawal process? What's that like in a prison? Did you have access to drugs? I, I assume there wasn't some sort of therapy or medication assisted treatment. What was that process like for you? Yeah, that's awful. I don't think I've had many worse detoxes for reasons that you don't know at the time. It's set right. and setting. So if you are in your house and you're detoxing and you just go cold turkey, as they say, a really weird term, but we know what that means. You just don't do anything that feels good today, chemical-wise. Right. You are still in a comfortable environment and you feel safe. And we now know that when you move somebody from that environment and uh, put them in a, a strange environment where they don't feel safe, or even if they feel, quote, safe, but they don't feel predictability in their environment, our our alerts go up and our stress hormones kick in because we've survived as humans. Uh, an interesting real quick side note on that rat experiment has shown that this process is what we call sudden setting is so intense that you can have rats who are on daily dependent doses of morphine and give them huge doses and they don't overdose, move them right. to a, a box that's a different color, give them the same dose and they'll overdose. That same thing, it doesn't stop when you stop using the drug. So they've hypersensitized me to everything around me and stuck me in. And as we now know, that makes relapse much more likely when people are eventually released. So the worst part of that, I think, is there's this, it's been 12, 15 years since I was in jail, something like that, since the last time. And it seemed at the time, and I've heard this story since, Morgan Godman talks about it, we were made examples of because it's a really good way to make sure we're in visibility, that we can talk to people while it's going on and say, they're not giving me anything but an ibuprofen. It's sort of like a horror story for those that go out in the world, because that's how we've dealt with the war on drugs for 100 years is to don't. <laughs> exactly. No, it's, you know, and the interesting thing too, and this is what's so sad, you know, and I I think where mental health is now, hopefully we're heading in that direction where, you know, when I was a kid, it wouldn't be okay to say you have anxiety. I can openly say I have anxiety. I'm not worried that someone from my job is going to find out. But with addiction, it's a whole set of other issues. I have people who are supporters of the Alberta Project who won't write a post like a Humans of Addiction explaining because uh, even though they're in recovery, they don't want a university to find out. How is that like for you as a teacher at two yeah. awesome universities and colleges? Like, did you have to disclose that up front? Were you nervous about people finding out? Like, did people, what about students? Do they know about your podcast? What's that look like? Disclose is a fun, a funny word. Um, I had to not only disclose it, I had to just lean into it. And along the way, like in my master's program and PhD, you have to write these really intense, basically a project just to apply to say, here's who I am. And it right. was that was the first point where I realized, well, mighty big elephant in the room. Right. And I just got I actually did, hadn't done as much research as I should have on where I went. I stumbled into for my master's, the University of Colorado, where I now teach after going somewhere else and getting a Ph.D. I came back And their department has, among other things, prison outreach, where they've been teaching Stephen Hartnett is the head of this teaching in prisons for 20 years. We've got a poetry magazine called Captured Words, Free Thoughts that is incarcerated people, art, poetry, and prose. If you know anybody that's got stuff that you're like, oh, I wish we could get this printed, send it our way. Once a year, cool. we, we print it out. We'll mail copies to people inside. If they want a copy, send me their address. But just stumbled into that and was like, whoa. So there's a space for people like me. When it came time to get hired, um, 
they hired me, so I think I'm okay to tell this, but this is the politics. It's, it's unavoidable. And since mine's front and center, I went right at it again. And we were like, I think it was two days before classes started where HR finally said, I, I guess it's a yes, because we've, you know, he's jumped through every hoop. I had, this is with, you know, people in the department that have known me for 10 years saying, come, you got to let this guy have a shot. And it's pure luck, given that all those things had to happen and my charges had to be, I have no violent charges. I have no sexual charges, nothing against kids. It's all petty, dumb shit that people who are struggling with detox and need a product that should cost 50 cents, but it costs 50 bucks and they need yep. it three times. We steal change out of, you know, the home, the uh, Salvation Army dish near the cash register, just, just stuff that's ridiculous, crimes yeah. of opportunity. So, yeah. No, it's, it, well, I'm happy that like, it sounds like it was an okay experience, but it still stinks that you have sort of had to jump through hoops. And it's like anyone else in your position probably would have had a much easier time had they not had a history of addiction. It's just like, can you imagine if they're like, oh, well, that person had cancer, so they yeah. can't get hired here. It's just, it's so crazy. And, and I think like, just sort of like racism, it's the people who don't have any stake or have a loved one dealing with addiction who need to speak up, right? It's yeah. that, that's what it is. And someone like me, who up until a year ago, didn't know the first thing about addiction, the war on drugs is crazy. It's an actual <laughs> thing. It's like, and, and I'm sure you knew some about it, but I'm sure your podcast has taught you as it has for me, what the lengths the governments of the world have gone through to make it so hard for people who are in addiction to like stay alive. Like yeah. that's like the basic fact of it. Um, so what have you learned? Like what's the most surprising thing that you've learned, even though you've dealt with addiction in the past, you didn't know about A, B, or C? Yeah, that's that's the the way you put that is starting right at the the most pivotal confusing part of this that seems to just be taken for granted which yeah. is why we know our culture is a little bit messed up in here when we call something a war and it is just the norm for 100 years and it rolls off our tongue and we just think that it's well of course it's the way it's got to be i think my one of my biggest what really came to find out that i always kind of heard well the, the war on drugs started for some racist reasons but we know that in the united states like we'll run the clock back far enough and just about everything is rooted in some of that because we built our culture on it originally we've done a lot of work to fix that but i'm not surprised but as i looked back and realized oh no no <laughs> it, it wasn't like they slowly cranked up the penalties you could buy a, two syringes and a vial of heroin from sears and roebuck and had it mailed to your door for i think it was a dollar 27 or something like that until the early 1900s and that was what ended this whole thing is once the mail started to get involved in capitalism sort of sears and roebucks was just one of many who started to realize well we could just use the mail to like really sell stuff there was no longer signs on the front of the door that said whites only and white folks began to lose their minds and we somehow were tricked into thinking that can that cannabis tincture we have in our cabinet at home because we like to drink our stuff for some reason we like to take the pills and to inject heroin and morphine we didn't realize that that cannabis was the marijuana they were talking about outlawing because these people coming from the south were losing their minds and supposedly doing all sorts of stuff it was yeah. the tradition of smoking so to, to put all that together and to realize that wait 
when we could buy drugs, it's not what we thought it was. You'd think it was hell. You, imagine right now what, what society thinks if, if heroin was $1.27 for a vial and two syringes and anybody could walk into Walgreens and buy as much as they want. Our brains have this image that says, oh my God, it would be hell. Things would be on fire. There would be no more. It turns out things were just fine. 6% of people who were addicted at the time were classified as poor. And the number that were classified as wealthy is not coming to mind right now, but I believe it was above 20%. That's wow. That doesn't even make sense to us now because yeah. our stereotypes of addiction now are like, no, your life's either already fallen apart or you're on the way. So stay away because you might take yeah. somebody down with you. Yeah, no, exactly. And it, it's just, it really is a thing. I, you know, and I think about the education aspect of all of this and what I really hope to do. And I know it, there's so many challenges with it, but just like how we have like CPR and first aid taught in schools and like driving in, in American schools, not in Canada where I'm from, why wouldn't we have like an addiction 101 at a young age, just like sex ed, you start introducing these topics, right? Because it was interesting. I just had my sister on this podcast um, and I didn't even know this, but she said when she, every single year from grade nine to 12 in high school, they had a person come in to basically talk about how horrid drugs are and ruined his life. So my sister was like scared to death. And then some of the other people were like, whoa, like that's a hard ass drug. Like, let me try that. It's like, that that did nothing and i'm sure the guy's intention is not to like screw up any high school kid's life but if we're just teaching just don't do like it just it blows my mind that that is still the narrative that persists and education is just so needed so like it's not only you and i who are really invested in it because someone who we lost people who were really close to us but it was just random people who are at least waking up and be like whoa this exists you know what i mean yeah and the irony is that when you tell people the truth especially kids who are super curious about things that they're told it exists but it's on the no-no shelf until you're far away from your parental people right. is that when you explain the truth about most of these drugs i mean really all drugs to some degree you find that the more you know the more you're like i should think twice about using that exactly. if i'm gonna use it i should make sure i don't use it every day for these reasons and if i'm gonna use it every day i should expect tolerance to develop and to make sure i'm you know watching if it's opioids watching for constipation and other things and to make sure that the, the benefits outweigh the cost these very simple, logical conversations make kids feel like, hmm. And at the end of all these drugs, this is like the same thing with injection sites. We don't have to tell the people going there this. I always am like, shh, we don't, just don't tell them this. They can go get their drugs. But it turns out that when these spots open in the United States now, finally, but across the world for 20 years now, yeah. that people that can get access to drugs, because there's also been heroin clinics, there is in Canada right now, across the board slowly but surely just decide mm, i guess i'm not really gonna they either stop outright or they switch to something that's a little bit less intense and we just get interested in life but when you are preoccupied from the second you wake up in the morning to the second you go to bed with securing a fix finding a place a spot to use it lying to everybody around you lest the police see you lagging a little bit trying to play the game of like just don't let anybody know so you don't get in trouble it's we've designed a system that is left out of those conversations that your sister mentioned. And that's what would be great in our country. We have quite a few educational guts missing for lack of a better term. And that's what our drug education is. They add a few things that are kind of true for sure. Drugs played a part in whatever issues I'm sure this person struggled with, 
but yeah. he wasn't using drugs in a vacuum. Heroin well, exactly. There, there's a reason for that person to, because, and this is another myth. I thought if you do drugs, you become addicted, right? N the truth is more than 95% of people who use even quote addictive drugs don't develop an addiction, right? We need to tackle the mental health and why is a person having substance use disorder because people can use these addictive drugs and use it once a month or whatever it is and be right. perfectly fine. Yeah, the number I've seen is like 80. It's still a ridiculously high number, but yeah. even if it were 95%, like here's where what we're saying strikes the ears of people that have been in a culture like ours as you're don't you realize that by saying this you're encouraging people to use drugs almost as if the words we're saying don't hit the way that they should if they were anything else. So if I said, "Oh, airplanes are awesome. You can fly to Vegas from Denver for 80 bucks." 95% of the airplanes make it to Las Vegas. And I mean, it's great. You get there in an hour and a half instead. How many people are going to be like, I don't, I think you just talked me out of flying. Where are the other 5% of the airplanes? I don't think that's worth my risk to get on. I think I'll drive, right? Anything else that isn't in a war against that thing, the words echo different, but we're in a culture where those dare classes have been, that's all we get. And for all appearances from the outside looking in, it kind of looks like drugs do destroy lives. You know? Right. Yeah. Even with what you're saying, like there's the difference between vocabulary we haven't developed, some that's kind of there, but like the word addiction, according to the DSM, it means that you have to essentially sh continue to use something, even though it is consistently the negatives are outweighing the positives. Right. But there's other people that use it, like uh, Dr. Judy Grizzle is a book called Never Enough that like should be required reading for that class you're talking about because it's about tolerance and specific drugs and how they work but she uses that word a little bit more medical facility where dependency is just about conflated with it and not totally and then she also uses a term we should all know about which is dependency which is why you can drink more uh, or why you need to drink your coffee every day to really be on top of your game right. it's not because you're an addicted person it's just because you bodies work that way when you encounter something over and over stress a human being whatever it is you get dependent on it as long as or uh, dependency in the sense that you get used to it being there and you don't operate at your 100 percent right. if it's, it's like a habit yeah, yeah like a partner in life exactly yeah exactly so what do you think is the biggest challenge right now to those in the addiction community and what do you think is the solution right now or at least to try to tackle that obstacle or barrier uh oh there's the big question the issue is supply so we are right now making we have this thing in this country i just call chronic wokeness which is where like we slowly make small changes and then we just pat ourselves on the back and walk away and right. in 20 years we revisit it and we're like oh there's a problem who could have known and we make a small change right now that small change is are you telling me we're going to let people walk into clinics in, in new york city and yep. inject drugs and the police are going to be able to see it and we're not going to arrest them they're still bringing drugs from out in the community where a product, cocaine and heroin, cost about a buck a gram to produce from scratch in South America or wherever you grow them. And they're, I don't know, we could estimate about five to 700 bucks a gram on the street because it's 80 to 100 bucks a gram. But what you're buying, according to everybody that does measurements, is 15 to 40% cocaine and a little bit higher, usually on heroin. Those people are still making boku, buku, buku bucks, boku bucks, tons of money as they sell those drugs. They still have every incentive to cut some fentanyl into them, to water them down a little bit, to cut the next guy out. And if somebody steals their dope out of desperation, 
they can't call the police. So we have the system behind the scenes that means our law enforcement is perpetually going to have to keep getting bigger. They're going to have to fight against people who would otherwise be capitalists paying tons of income tax into a system, selling a product that people are determined to buy. Supply is what we're going to have to start talking about. And right now, culturally, our wokeness is sort of patting ourselves on the back about these injection sites that are an awesome first step. But they're basically letting people go all the way to the point where they're overdosing and then making sure someone's around to revive them. Exactly. To save That's their life. not a solution. That's a, a stopgap when we realize, oh, we've got a really big problem we've been ignoring for 100 years. Yeah, it's like getting to stage five cancer, like letting them come to this place, get stage five cancer, keeps progressing and then trying to save their life too late. It's like, what are we doing? Right. No, I, I think that that's really well said because I agree it's a thousand percent a step in the right direction. But what I always talk about with my board and my friends is like, it's just not keeping pace with the number of people are dying at it every day, right? You have friends like yours who passed away, my friend Reed. I just, I think, you know, 100,000, that is so many people, but you actually think about the people and the stories and the family and friends behind those numbers. And it's not just a number anymore. Right. And I think that that's the challenging part. And um, I didn't even know before my podcast and everything, like, fentanyl for example mm -hmm. is used by doctors like you when you go to a hospital and like you have some major injury like that's a painkiller like it is a thousand and ten percent possible to get these drugs they exist they they yeah. are medically there it's just the stigma and there's so much behind it that we just can't get to the point where we're like okay there's not going to be it's you know, it's interesting that the word overdose is used because I really don't think it's accurate. It's like drug poisoning because people just don't know what they're getting. And it's yeah. the same with alcohol, right? If you you know what's in your alcohol, people aren't dying anymore like they were in prohibition from it. Yeah. Yeah. And to spice that a little bit, like there's some some terrible capitalistic irony, ir ironies in fentanyl and why it exists. It exists because doctors were realizing a long time ago, pharmacists and hospital owners, that if they did a surgery on somebody with, say, morphine or another opiate, the half-life was whatever it is, hour and a half, which means after they come out of general anesthesia, if you walk in and say, hey, how's your gut feel? And you're at seven and a half hours of your eight-hour shift as a doctor, and they say, feels great, doc, and you send them home, you're probably in big trouble a lot of times because they couldn't feel the pain. The solution, keep them overnight. Cha-ching, right? That's a lot of money for the same surgery that if you could just send them home, fentanyl's half-life is incredibly short deliberately and it's incredibly potent deliberately mm. so that you can give people less of a drug, have it wear off quick and get them the hell out of there. What you get to like add to the other side of this, the, the clinics where people should be able to go and get drugs, isn't so much so that we can just give people endless supplies. If they're going to get them, that's the place they should go. But it's to cross their paths with all the people that will not only explain what I just said, but mm -hmm. also why if you're on the street and you love fentanyl, you might still want to think about a different way to feed that need for opioids because of the half-life. Talk about being stuck in a perpetual loop all day. Fentanyl is like 18 minutes. And if it's got something like car fentanyl in it, it's even shorter than that. So the people that if they're using heroin every 45 minutes or so, we, we sort of come completely back feeling sober and we go tick tock, got about three more hours, Ben, that you better, hopefully there's dope here, but if there's not get your ass out there and hustle up with fentanyl, it's like every 15 minutes and you're wow. either sitting in a spot smoking or reusing it, or you're out hustling it up. And if you don't realize on the front side, 
that this is where that addiction leads. Yeah. And most people don't, same with methadone. I heard you talk about this briefly with David Posey, so we don't have yeah. to go too far into it. But if you just know that the half-life is 72 hours and you can take it and you're not sick all day, that is nothing like people saying, well, you're replacing one drug with another. Exactly. You're basically changing the whole scenario. And at seven in the morning, when you're planning on running all day, stealing stuff, running in a back alley to shoot up, you're going to look in the mirror, look at the door and go, what the hell am I supposed to do all day now? I'm not going to be sick. And I'm not, I'm not going to be sick tomorrow either. And we go focus on rehab, therapy, right. the school, a, a job, I'll hang out with my kids. Uh, yeah. All those things suddenly come back into focus, but not until the catastrophe that is I'm going to be in full-blown detox in two hours is no longer on the radar. No, 100%. And I was going to say, Ben, no, this is really great and interesting stuff. What would be your last piece of advice for either someone struggling actively, someone who's in recovery or like a family and friend like me, what would you say to support? What can we do to support and be loud and overcome the stigma? Yeah. Uh, my advice is always define your own recovery. And as much as you've got to advise friends whose definitions uh, are, are in, are, something that can't be carried out, right? Like they're unsustainable is the word I was looking for. This doesn't mean let your friends define their recovery as smoking crack for only 23 hours before going to sleep for one. We got to learn how to support our friends. And when some, some of us have friends that have decided they don't want to stop using, but they want to be productive or they want to start going to a therapist or they want to switch to methadone, but still be able to use heroin. The closer we get those people, the, the quicker this will turn a corner and we'll head towards a a redefinition of what drug addiction is. Love it, Ben. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate this. Great work for you too. I said it before we turned on the recording, but impressive to see people coming into this space and soaking up knowledge and, and handing it back out. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following The Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.